Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly look at the latest evidence in COVID and maybe a couple of other things that might be going on as well. So last time on the show, we explained that we're going to be doing this fortnightly now as the evidence cycle on coronavirus has slowed down a little bit and we want to take time to bring you some more fully formed things. And then in the intervening time, Anthony Fauci in the US has just said he wouldn't be surprised if uh, they reach 100,000 cases a day and Donald Trump bought other remdesivir and in the UK it seems like Scotland might be clearing the virus uh, whilst in Leicester there's a spike and they're heading back into lockdown. Um, so perhaps that was a little bit optimistic but we're going to stick with it. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ and as always I'm joined by Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan. Guys, can I get you to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And Helen. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor for the BMJ. And a resting GP. Oh yes, that too. <laughs> still resting. I still have a GP's brain. Yes. So I'm slightly hesitant to, to ask, but uh, what have you been thinking about this week? What's been going on? Helen? Well, I've been thinking about death. <laughs> I've got some more questions for Carl on death data. So I wondered if, if we could start there. Yeah, we haven't heard from Carl, a little one of his death updates. Uh, Carl, go on, tell us. Well, I, I think there's been some very interesting issues in the news this week, particularly in the UK. We had the Office for National Statistics ONS that reports on Tuesday showed that there were 9,339 deaths. That was 637 fewer than week 24. It's now week 25. But importantly, what they showed is that it was the lowest number since week 12. And that actually, for the first time since then, we are now under the five-year average. And there were about 65 deaths lower than the five-year average. So one of the ways I've described that is if you look at what's happened is it's in a very interesting shape in terms of the mortality curve. Huge rise up and then similarly a rise comes down at the same speed and we're the first phase of deaths is over. And this is excess deaths or total so this, deaths? Yes, yeah, so that's excess deaths. Mm. And in, what's interesting in the first half of this year, the first 10 weeks, we trended under in terms of deaths, and it was about 2 or 3% less than what we'd normally expect. Then this huge rise, more than 10,000 per week XX deaths for about two or three weeks in a low, row, and now we back down below. And it could be now over the next few months, we start to see this go under, because what we've done is displace deaths forward in time, because a lot of very elderly, vulnerable people have died in this outbreak who otherwise would have died over the next few months. And that's why we might go back under again. Well, actually, what I wanted to ask you about was something slightly different, which was less the trending down death rate, but more these stories making international comparisons. Um, and the BBC had one this week suggesting that the UK was not coming out well compared to our closest European neighbours or compared to other G7 uh, countries. And the story said that the BBC had been working with the Health Foundation, um, an independent health analysis charity and economists at Oxford University's Institute of New Economic Thinking on comparable analyses between countries. 
And I felt a bit cautious about those. Ever since we spoke um, quite near the beginning of the pandemic with David Spiegelhalter, um, who pointed out that there are a number of problems analysing deaths between countries, perhaps with the timing of the death or how it's recorded or what locations they're counting death at home or death in hospital. Um, and I wondered, Carl, if you'd seen that and if you have any thoughts on how, how sound analyses that we can make across countries are now. So I think it's very interesting what's happened throughout this pandemic. Is the news looks for sensationalist stories to report, ignoring the bigger issue, for instance, we are back where we are normal. But one of the key problems I find with looking across the board at other countries is the quality of the data, the reporting of the data. First to say is the ONS is a fantastic uh, production of statistics. I just yeah. do not find across the, the globe we can get similar estimates. They're delayed in time. If they don't have a national health service, they don't come into one area. So we see a number of interesting issues, but it's too early to compare. And we're trying to do something simple, say, with Italy. Just compare the UK and Italy. Because if you look at it, we're broadly similar. In terms of our deaths, we look a bit more, they look a little bit less. But we're really interested in the age profile and we're finding it very difficult to just do that one analysis. The age is reported differently. They've got delays we can't access. They've got excess deaths that haven't got into their system yet. So we think we'll only be able to do this analysis probably three, six months down the line. And then we'll come back to you with some answers. So I feel it's premature at the moment. It's helpful to point out these issues, but to infer anything, I would have great mm. caution about at this moment in time. Well, there was another bit of the Office for National Statistics report that was released on the 26th of June, which I thought was quite interesting. And that was looking at um, the death rate amongst people of working age, so between 20 and 64, between March and May 2020, by occupation. And they described that two-thirds of deaths were in men, um, so around 19 deaths per 100,000 men of working age occurred in that time period versus 10 per 100,000 women. And they found that male and female care workers, more social care workers uh, than healthcare workers, had higher rates of death, so 50 per 100,000 in men and 19 per 100,000 in women. Um, amongst healthcare workers, it was only males who had a higher rate of death overall, so 30 per 100,000, not women. But that headline seemed quite blunt because beneath that, there were some healthcare workers, particularly nurses, who had higher rates of death in both men and women. And then more intriguingly, I thought, was this identification amongst men of 17 higher risk occupations, um, including those such as drivers, chefs, security guards and sales assistants who had much higher rates of death. And in around 11 of those occupations, there were higher rates of workers from black and Asian ethnic backgrounds. So this was clearly quite a complicated picture and it's not to say that occupation is a cause here there are obviously other factors ethnicity is one that they brought up but also urban density and deprivation um, and other comorbidities but it did make me think of a couple of things we've been talking about recently one was the point that John Deeks raised in our podcast last week around how antibody testing amongst hospital workers might help to understand which of their staff have been most exposed uh, to COVID. So not just thinking about doctors and nurses, but also thinking about perhaps porters and cleaners. 
And it made me think about the campaign the BMJ has been running, advocating for better PPE, particularly for clinicians, and perhaps forgetting that there are less vocal members of the healthcare team out there who have less clear voices to strong journals um, and, and sort of roots of advocacy to get the protection they need. And then going beyond that into non-healthcare roles like security guards who perhaps need better advice or a little bit more attention. How good do you think those data are, Carl? Well, look, there's so many interesting points there. How long have we got? We've only got about another 20 minutes. We've got a problem. The men versus women's quite interesting, isn't it? Here, This is in preventing premature deaths, if you like, because of under 65, did you say? That was right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, 20 to 64. Well, the area where we know men have more problems than women is in cardiovascular disease. And it's really interesting whether there's some mirror there within the consequences of catching COVID that actually it predisposes you to more cardiovascular problems per se more than the respiratory problems. So that's quite interesting and that could be an explainer versus was it that actually you were more likely to catch the disease in the first place? And that could be the case in some occupations versus others. But I think what's needed here is is the in-depth individual analysis to, to uh, look at the confounders like pre-existing heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. So how would you do that? Well, you go back to the individual data analysis. And I think people like the Open Safely crew who can access the records, see if they can tease out some of the individual bits of the data to say, look, can we match some of these issues across the board? The other people who can do that are the people in Liverpool at Semple who's got the data in hospitals and say, look, can we propensity match the people with infection to control to see does that get rid of some of the effect? And I think that's really important to tease that out. Do you think it would alter your actions to try and ameliorate infections in those groups yes but what it does suggest is that actually it's then your risk in the first place of being in that frontline job so for instance if you've got diabetes in the first place then the question is should you be in a frontline exposure Mm. job or Mm. that's a risk assessment where we go look actually you're the sort of person who should have been shielding and I'm aware that some people have shielded But this comes to the consequences then of lots of socio-economic issues that some people go, I can't afford to shield. I can't afford not to go to work. And if I don't go to work, I'm on a zero hours contract and that's a real problem for me. And that's the issues we've got to deal with. We've got to be clear that we do shield those at higher risk in the future and or put them in places where they're not going to be at risk. So I think... They're all really interesting questions. But there's another important point I wanted to make is in the data uh, this week, we've published on the declining death rate from COVID-19 in hospitals in England. What's happened is if you look at the daily number of people who've died in hospital and the daily number of people who are in hospital in about April. Yeah, there was about six percent of people in hospital died. That figure is now down to 1.5%. So it's a huge reduction. And what we've seen is the number of people in hospital with COVID is reducing by about 2.4% every day. But the number of deaths is reducing by much more, by about 4.3% per day. So what does that mean? We're getting better at treating it? Well, there are loads. Let me, and, well, let me just... The, 
Not only is it deaf, we've even looked at it in declining admissions to intensive care units. In fact, the ratio of people, daily patients admitted to ICU has come down. It, it was about 12% at the end of March. It's now about 2 to 2.5%. Two in fact, if you look at the proportion of patients going on mechanical ventilators, it's gone down. The percentage of current ICU patients has gone down from about 90% to about 25%. And finally, the survival, and this is INARC data, the audit data that goes through the Intensive Care Association, the 14-day moving average for outcomes who are survivors has gone from about 50-55% survival to near 80% which is what you'd normally see with viral pneumonia. So there's been huge changes in the death rate, in the impact of who's going into mechanical ventilators, and the survival on ICU. And that's a really interesting issue mm. that we are exploring and want people to look at in detail because it has a major issue about the virility, the severity of this disease. Does that link back to what you were saying at the beginning of this, Carl, about the fact that, you know, our death rate might have dropped below the, the sort of rolling average because those people who are particularly vulnerable have already died because of COVID? So we're seeing a different demographic of, of people who are actually in hospital with it at the moment. Yeah, I, we've seen some reports of that in Italy. The first thing is to say there are still some vulnerable people out there because if you look at somewhere like care homes, We've managed to get to about 42% of all care homes have had outbreaks in the UK, which is a huge number, completely disproportionate to what's happened in the community. Mm. But there are still about another half, just over a half to go. So there are some, if we let it into them homes, we've got a problem. But generally what we see is when people are admitted to hospital, we don't admit them because they're less severe. We tend to admit the ones that go into hospital because we think they can benefit. There is definitely some aspect that I'm picking up that people are saying they're not as severe, the patients are not as sicker, the viral load is less. So that's one aspect. I think two is our potential to treat people better, which could be doing the right thing, like giving dexamethasone, or withholding certain treatments has got better. Whether the virus is attenuating and becoming less virulent, I think that's a really interesting issue that as it works its way through a population, I'm crossing my fingers here, and you heard it first, I hope what happens is it becomes less virulent. And that has certainly happened in the past. And it tends to happen with all pandemics. They have a first wave, potentially second wave, and then they go into the seasonal effect where it just becomes part of the background. And if that happens, we may see the disease just become less effective in terms of creating the huge upturn in admissions and deaths that it did in early March, mid-March. Mm. Well, I'm sure we will come back to that um, in the future. And uh, if you're listening and uh, you want to get in touch with us to see if Carl's uh, prediction is true or not, then go to bmj.com slash podcast and there you can find out uh, how to do that. Just to say that I am, I am ruining some of the things I've said. This week I said it was okay to go to cricket, but not to have the tea and cucumber sandwiches. So I might be in a bit of trouble by the end of the week. So, yes, I'm sure I'll hear from people about some of these predictions going forward. Yeah, so I guess the major issue is whether the cricket ball acts as a fulcrum for infection. Ah.
Well, there you go. That will be a study we'll see soon, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Helen, we've talked a little bit about PPE there, and uh, you have brought to the table a new paper that we've just published uh, looking at PPE and its association with infection um, in some doctors and nurses in China. Yeah, I think the headline of this, to cut a long story short, is that if you have very extreme PPE, far beyond the kind of um, sandwich aprons and um, uh, loose-fitting surgical masks that UK clinicians might be familiar with, there doesn't seem to be much COVID infection getting through. I think that's the the overall message of this paper. It looked at a population of around 400 or so doctors and nurses, mostly nurses in the Wuhan area of China across a number of hospitals who all had direct contact with patients with COVID-19 over a period about, of about six to eight weeks where they seemed to be working quite intensely and were otherwise living in hospital accommodation with with very strict um, infection control measures around them. Most of them were working in secondary care, including in ITU, but about a third of them weren't in ITU. But they were all exposed to aerosol generating procedures. And they had some pretty heavy duty PPE on. They had a kind of buddy system to make sure they put it on well. They had suits, masks, gloves, goggles, face shields, gowns. Um, there's some and, extraordinary uh, videos there's of, extraordinary um, footage yeah, yeah. <laughs> of what they were wearing and after they finish this clinical stint they go into quarantine for two weeks and during that period of time they're tested three times with a nasal swab nasopharyngeal mm. swab um, for covid and also have uh, a serum igm or igg test at the end and they are all found to be negative um, on all kinds of testing at the end of that time period. Uh, so I thought I would bring that because there has been so much discussion around PPE and what appropriate PPE is. And um, that is certainly at the, at the heavy duty end. But I thought it might prove reassuring to some healthcare workers, particularly those um, who might be at, at higher risk of um, getting infection. Um, but it, as I said, it doesn't tell us much about the kind of gear that Carl wears when he drives around on his yeah. out-of-hour well, shift. I'm going <laughs> to come to that. There was there were some interesting bits. There are two bits to me that, well, probably more than two, but I'm going to pick out two. The first thing is to say it wasn't just the PPE because there were several other measures adopted. Mm. And one was minimising direct contact with patients. And I think that's incredibly interesting because I do that right now. Hone down my examination and I'm going to try and get in and out while communicating all of the issues required, not just for my, but mainly for the patient's benefit, so I'm not transmitting anything in that way. And I think there's a really interesting piece of research, if not more research, about this reduced examination. But my second point was to say it wasn't just PPE, was it, with this? It was also they had to lived in hotels designated for frontline healthcare professionals. They had special shuttles to transport to work. They followed rules of social distancing after work and its social interaction was minimised. And they also had all of their meals in their own rooms and all food was delivered to them. Oh, yeah. It's, I said it's extreme. Yeah. Not just extreme PPE. Yeah. It's a bit like a sci-fi movie mm. of some kind. <laughs> so they reduce their risk of being infected and their risk of becoming a transmitter of onward infection. And I think what we're seeing here is the idea that 
we have to think about infection differently. It looks like with this in regime, you might work two weeks on and then you have a few weeks off, but you've got to be in quarantine because you basically have been in contact with all these people. But the idea is in that two-week period, you live in a bubble in effect. Mm. And I think that's probably important in our strategy. The other thing was in here that they, like you say, the videos, but training. Mm. Now, I'd be really interesting. Uh, I have not had much training in personal protective equipment. And actually, one of the things I think we need to do going forward in the downtime is have training weeks where we switch on and go, yes, we're all in the mode. People observe you, watch you, see if you're breaking the rules by scratching your head or picking your nose or eating together. You're going, look, you are creating risk all the time and not see it as a, as a sort of a measure of improving what we do to get these sorts of results. Mm. I suppose uh, this is a message that's come through a lot. Don't put all your eggs in one basket with PPE or masks or anything. It's a combination of lots of stuff a complex intervention that's mm. the evidence jargon term isn't it carl it is and there's a <laughs> mrc complex intervention framework very useful if you're thinking of developing a complex intervention for practice Right, talking of uh, all these different ways in which COVID can be prevented, there are also multiple trials of things to treat it. Now, last week we heard about remdesivir and the data that came out of the recovery trial and how that was uh, initially released as a press release and it took a little while for us to actually get a preprint on it. Now, the same thing has happened uh, for another drug in that trial, lapinavir. Uh, Carl, you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, uh, lapinavir and ritonavir are protease inhibitors designed to treat HIV. So I don't think this is an unsurprising result because it's a different mechanism of how how it operates in terms of affecting the transcription of RNA. But this study was stopped early this week because of a lack of effect seen in the arms compared to control and what they showed is that it had 1,596 patients were randomized to lopinavir and ritonavir compared with 3,376 patients to usual care alone and in terms of the important endpoint there was no difference in terms of 28-day mortality and that was non-significant and given that was consistent across different subgroups of patients like those in ICU, those in just the general wards and there was no beneficial effects on the risk of progression to mechanical ventilation. That arm's been dropped on a futility and what it does allow is to preferentially recruit into other arms of the trial but we won't be seeing that drug anytime soon because it's of no clinical benefit in terms of the important hard outputs. Mm. And uh, the other drug we were talking about there, and Desenvir before this, we might not see soon because uh, the US has bought it all up. But Helen, you were wondering whether that we were going to have some good data on this in the, in the future. Yeah, I'm hoping actually in two weeks' time when we come back, um, we're expecting a bit of a data deluge, I think, from the from the trials uh, and ongoing work. And I hope that we can come back with a bit more information on the different treatment options available for COVID-19 next time. Great. 
So guys, we promised during Talk Evidence we might give people a little break from COVID. And uh, we have a non-COVID trial to talk about. Um, Helen, you uh, have been looking at an intervention to reduce polypharmacy? Yes, I'd almost forgotten how to search for non-COVID <laughs> content. <laughs> and I ended up having, I was having uh, having dinner with my husband, Laurie, who's a, a GP partner. And I was saying, come on, tell me, what do you want? What kind of evidence <laughs> do you want us to talk about this week? Um, and I was looking around uh, on bmj.com, starting my search from home. And um, I came across this trial looking at deprescribing, um, which had which had some appeal, you know. Um, I think everyone can identify with having seen people on a lot of drugs who uh, run into trouble or perhaps have had the satisfaction of stopping a drug which is troublesome and then somebody feeling much better. There's obviously pushes towards deprescribing. Um, and I also thought to another point we've been talking about emerging from lockdown, what things are worth doing in your routine practice if this is a moment to stop and pause. Um, so I got quite excited when I found this study. <laughs> However, I think it's fair to say, always dangerous, that this is perhaps going to um, disintegrate into more of a journal club <laughs> because this paper is actually quite tricky to read. But we'll, we'll take it from the top. We'll go slowly. We've got Carl here. Tricky is an understatement. <laughs> We've got Carl here to... Uh, help um, clarify and bring clear explanation where I start running into trouble, which is quite near the start, but here we go. So this is a study, it's a cluster randomized control trial looking at um, the use of a computerized decision tool for deprescribing in primary care. And it happened across a number of countries uh, and it was randomized at the doctor level um, and the doctors recruited patients who were um, 75 years or older who were using eight or more drugs on a regular basis. And these could be prescribed ones or non-prescription ones. And they were randomised, these doctors, to either use this computerised decision aid, which included sort of, I guess I would characterise as fairly obvious things, um, to check the indications for the current drugs, um, check their lab results, um, recommendations about amending current drugs based on best evidence, dose adjustment for renal impairment, um, harmful drug-drug interactions, contraindications, dose warnings, possible adverse effects, that kind of thing. Um, they get some training to use the intervention and they get some support, um, but it's not happening. It's all happening within routine care. They're not being asked to do special visits or anything like that to specifically look at prescribing for these patients above and beyond what they would usually do. And they decide to pick an outcome. It's a composite outcome which combines unplanned hospital admission or death from any cause um, and they also plan as a secondary outcome or a the most important secondary outcome I can think in my mind to look at the number of drugs that the patients were prescribed. Now, before we came on air, Carl and I did pause particularly around this composite outcome and how sensible it is to combine unplanned hospital admissions with death from any cause, which are clearly quite different. But that's what they picked, so we can't we can't alter that. And they powered the trial. It's very hard to follow the logic for why they picked this, but they they anticipate or they're looking for a difference 
of a 20% reduction in this outcome in the intervention group compared to the control group at two years, which to me seemed huge. Um, what do you reckon, Carl? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, uh, I wouldn't have even powered it on that sort of detection because I think you really want this is as a non-inferiority. You want to make sure you don't make it worse, don't you? By stopping the drugs. By stopping well, we'll the drugs. We'll come back to that point later. I'll tell you a bit more about the results first, or I'll try to. <laughs> uh, but so, just before you do that, um, just on that power bit there, maybe it's worth explaining a little bit about uh, how that works. Well, it depends. It's also a function of the, of the control event rate. So, you know, in this outcome, it's very high. The population's old. So if you look at it, their risk of death, I think, at the end of the day was about 20%. So one of the things about 20% reduction would be an absolute reduction of 4%, which is quite a big difference in effect to achieve that. But the key here is really what you do want to make sure as well is, is you're not increasing mortality. Because the question is, can you take them drugs away? And it may be they have an impact on quality of life with no impact on overall mortality. That's the key issue for me. So I think there are bits about this that are not quite as well thought through as I would like to see. Well, let's come to the results yeah, yeah. and see okay. how we get on there. So we've got um, a little over 300 practices that were recruited and we've got approaching 4,000 participants who have a median age of 81, slightly more women than men. So not um, unlike what you might expect and they described that the intervention sort of didn't really make an appreciable difference, but the results are quite hard to follow. So 51% of the patients in the intervention group, the, the group whose uh, doctors were um, using or had access to the uh, de-prescribing tool were admitted or died. And 54% of those in the control group were admitted or died, which gives an odds ratio of 0.88 with a confidence interval, 95% confidence interval, stretching from 0.73 to 1.07 and a p-value of 0.19. Carl, demystify that for us because in <laughs> yeah, absolute a lot terms, of numbers it's there. quite hard. It's not the 20% they were looking for, I think. Is no, so one of the things I'm going to have here is it out with the BMJ. How did the odds ratios get in there in the first place? Now, the first thing for me is I always alarm bells when I see odds ratios. And there are times to use odds ratios because they allow for issues like doing logistic regression in case control studies. But in randomised control trials, they are more or less a no-no for me. And I'm going to quote 1998, a paper by Doug Altman and Jonathan Deeks, which is in the BMJ and should be compulsory reading for all of your research ed editors, that says odd ratios should be avoided when events are common. And there are really interesting issues mathematically behind why that occurs. I'm not going to go into that right now, otherwise it will send you to sleep. But they are to be avoided in trials at all costs because they're misleading. So what would you have given us then instead? Well... In fact, when I go into the paper, and I had all sorts of issues with this paper, but you have to go down to the tables and start to look at the tables. So Table what, three, that's the Table key three. Here, and separating out the uh, 
outcomes into death or first unplanned admission. What you find is, the first is, the deaths in the intervention group were 19.5% and were slightly lower at 18.8%, but that was a non-significant, but that difference is 0.7%. Risk difference, 0.7%. And then for the first planned unplanned hospital admission, slightly lower in the intervention group, 48.4%, as opposed to 50.7%, and that was non-significant, a difference of 2.3%. So suddenly with the risk differences, you start to get a much better understanding that actually, if you understood that, I'm saying look for about 100 people in the intervention group, you get about two less unplanned admissions, but actually it's not significant, so we can't say it could be more, could be slightly less. And that's how we should report it in the abstract. Hmm. Well, can I drag us back to clinical reality, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> get away from all out, those numbers. Out of the maths. Let's, get, let's put those numbers aside. Um, in fact, before we leave the numbers, we should say that the people in the intervention um, group ended up taking 0.5 fewer drugs as well than the control group before we leave the numbers. Do you have a major quibble with that, Carl? No, but the baseline number of drugs, remind me, was about 10. So you're talking the difference between 10 and 10 and a half. Yes. So not a lot of drugs, really, at the end of the day, is it? So it's not really a big effect. And therefore... Half a drug, really. What? How would that impact on death or unplanned <laughs> well, admission? Well, what they say, the, what the author, I'll give you the author's bottom line. They say they found no conclusive evidence that unplanned hospital admission and all-cause mortality differed between the groups. The number of drugs was reduced slightly in the intervention group, and they felt that at population level, that might represent a substantial reduction in the overall treatment burden and prescribing costs. But they also make this point that you, Carl, made, you made, Carl, at the start, which is that the number of drugs was reduced, albeit slightly, without any increase in harm. And they felt, therefore, that that should support the use of such a tool in practice. I think... The person who wrote the editorial link to this felt a bit differently. I got the sense, and I'm massively paraphrasing here, that perhaps such interventions are kind of tinkering around the edges and actually we need a much more radical approach to confidently deprescribing large numbers of drugs in older people rather than aiming for reductions of perhaps half a drug or a single drug and, and thinking about things on a population level. Well, one of the things I was thinking about in this is that you you develop a decision support tool you put it in there and you compare it to usual care is that appropriate because in in the cds the decision support they may be more active management by the gps other aspects so what should be the usual care arm and i wondered whether there should be something like as a cochrane review on pharmacist services for non-hospitalized patients that should be the control group and they could have copied some of the outcomes and approaches which they could have brought into this trial. I think it'd be much better for these studies. And this, this study didn't describe any patient or public partnership, for example, but to have much clearer rationale mm-hmm. um, for the endpoints that have been picked and be clear who's been consulted um, around these things. Because as you say, well-being is, is another area which I think people 
at this stage of their life are likely to value uh, hospital visits. There could be all kinds of different um, outcomes uh, in addition to those which we see here. I do want to say, though, there's a problem in the elderly, which is therapeutic inertia sets in. People get on 10, 11 drugs and then they just get left on them. And there is an issue, particularly as you go beyond the age of 75, there is often a lot of evidence missing. So I think there is a need to develop interventions here, but actually I think they're more complex than just a simple decision support. So just then, Carl, you talked about uh, developing interventions. And with this next section, we are sticking with our no con. Uh, content and I suspect it's something that at least a chunk of our audience will be very interested in which is uh, academic promotion. Um, well I want to say that more people should be interested in it. <laughs> this, is around, <laughs> this is around what criteria are used to promote academics which you might think is only of interest and relevance to academics but as a non-academic uh, I did think this was quite relevant because the way that academics are promoted I think is really quite closely aligned to what science then comes to value. And those measures that are used are likely to shape the kind of science that we see. And to some extent, we know that research feels dominated by this publish or perish culture, by the impact factor. And these are not necessarily measures of good science. Um, so this was an interesting paper, research paper published in the BMJ recently, um, looking at to what extent institutions um, have explicit guidance on promotion in academia and what what's in them, whether they're traditional, labelled traditional factors of volumes of publications, authorship order, impact factor of the journal you published in, amount of money you got in grants, international praise and recognition of some kind, or whether um, you can find non-traditional factors in there. And the authors define some of these, which I guess is, is to some extent questionable, but you can kind of see where it's going. So they're looking at um, more citations to your particular work, at data sharing, at registration of studies, reporting guidelines, use of reporting guidelines, sharing research, um, and employment leave and, and factors for things like parental duties. Um, and... They look at about 170 institutions around the world, mostly in North America and Europe, and essentially find that that these traditional uh, criteria dominate in, in what they can find out about the promotion criteria in that institution. And I wanted to come to Carl on this around whether those um, traditional and non-traditional um, factors sort of ring true for you and whether you think any of those non-traditional criteria are good ones, or would you pick different ones to that? So I think there's, this is a very interesting issue within academia. And I think I start with what they, they start at the end, what is known on this topic. Academics tailor their research practice according to the evaluation criteria, which is a huge They're human. Problem. They're human yeah, beings they're at human. the end of the day. Which is a huge <laughs> problem for research. Because if you, these smart people will tend to go, this is what's required. And I think that's the problem with the quality criteria. But you have to set some metrics. And generally, there are three areas where we consider. One is in your research criteria. And there are two for that. And that tends to be grants. And that tends to be 
publications with some measure of the sort of scholarly level of that publication. And in doing that, I mean things like H-index. And H-index is for every paper you publish, if it's cited once and you publish one paper, your H-index is what? If you publish 10 papers, you have to have 10 citations for each one of them, and your H-index is 10. And the idea of that approach is, as you get grow older and get bigger, it gets harder and harder to keep growing your H-index. So there's some measure which is a sort of metric of your doing work that is cited by others. The second issue is teaching. But it's really interesting in institutions, and particularly where I am in Oxford, it's much harder to get to be a professor through teaching alone. And I think that's been a mistake. And I'm thinking I'm going back to the times of the William Oslers when teaching was a really important aspect of medicine, was an important aspect of universities. It still is, but it seems to be harder to get promotion through that route. And, and then the third is a sort of a level where you should have presence outside the university. And that means, for instance, you may have be sat on a board like NICE or contribute to government policy, or you do things in the wider realm that are seen as leading in the field of education and research. Being an editor-in-chief of a journal, for instance, would be seen like that. Now you've guessed why I do it, because it's according to the evaluation <laughs> criteria. <laughs> the problem with all this approach, though, and I spend a lot of time is you've got to be careful because if you set out on a journey and go, I want to be a professor, I need to do A, B and C, I think you're not going to enjoy it. You're, not, you're going to find it hard to follow a route of research that really excites you and, and makes you passionate. And I've had a lot of success by listening to members of the public or patients who've come to me. Generally, most of them have been about harms and issues, but they have, when I've listened, I thought, mesh, this is a big issue. At the moment, hormone pregnancy test, it's a big issue. By listening and going, oh, we're going to do the work in that area, it's only been good for me and our team. And I think that's what I think is important about these metrics. Yes, be aware of them, understand what you've got to do, but follow the impact where your energy will persist, if you like. So what would you like to see on the tick list, Carl? In an idea? What, what would you have on your non-traditional criteria? Well, I think um, number one is I'd prioritise uh, teaching and communication. And by teaching, I don't mean just traditional teaching within the research setting. I think we have a job and a duty to teach the wider world, if you like, the public, schools. But then second is the communication aspect of what we do. And there are some researchers who are excellent in their research communication, how they go about it but it's few and far between. And I think it's because it's very scary to put your neck out, stick it stick out there, just like we do here on this podcast, because what happens is, make a mistake. Oh, my gosh, do people like to tell you about it? <laughs> and, you know, it, that can be very debilitating when you're trying to communicate. And the other thing is, it's quite hard. I find it, you know, you, it's a learning trajectory, doing all this communicating. Good writing, hard work. The more you do, the better you get. Same with this stuff. So I think there are bits of what we should do that we lower down the sort of, okay, you've got to do this research because the problem is we just have too much of the research grind and less of, actually, let's think about what we're doing, communicate what's already there, let's build capacity. I'd love to see more of that. 
So there we go. That was a quick whiz through academic uh, promotion. I've also covered death, uh, PPE, and uh, some COVID treatments in here. Um, that's it for this week. We will be back again in a fortnight where hopefully we will have some more data on uh, remdesivir and potentially other COVID treatments. Um, as I said in the middle, if you are interested in getting in touch with us about anything we've talked about or to suggest topics, then go to bmj.com slash podcasts or Helen and Carl are on social media and you can get in touch with them there too. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Uh, take care out right there.